Good morning. In his book, What If Jesus Was Serious, author Sky Jathani shares that the city of Mumbai, India, has now established several no-selfie zones due to the number of deadly accidents involving individuals attempting to take selfies. At the time of, the, of his writing, Jathani referenced a Washington Post article report listing that over 250 people had died in recent years attempting to take a selfie. Now, it doesn't appear to have gotten any better. A New York Times article last year claimed that between the years 2011 and 2017, more people died in selfie-related accidents than were killed in shark attacks. Now, this guy, however, he, I don't, he may have counted twice, I don't know. I don't know how that ended up for him, or if it's even real. But there were several articles online detailing these tragic selfie deaths. I'm going to spare you all the graphic details this morning, because they're, they're terrible. Uh, you can do your own research if you're into that sort of thing. But I think Sky Jathani surmises it well when he states, it appears that our desire to be seen by others is killing us. So what is it that would drive so many to risk their lives to take a selfie to post on social media? Again, I think Jathani nails it. He states, we've come to believe that our lives matter only if they are noticed. This deep longing to matter by being seen is what fuels social media in some ways. We want someone, anyone, to take notice, to care about us, to see us, and to like us. We go online to find a witness to our life. But what we're really searching for on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is for someone to tell us, you matter. Your life counts. So you, you heard the passage read by Kellen. The first century audience Jesus spoke to at the Sea of Galilee when he gave the Sermon on the Mount knew nothing of selfies or social media, but they, like us, needed to be reminded that they should not practice their righteousness in front of others to be noticed. Jesus says that what's done in secret is what matters most, and he specifically references the first century religious practices of giving, prayer, and fasting as being things that should not be done for the purpose of being noticed by others. All right, so Jesus stated at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he, and he begins to tackle various areas of the law, subsequently raising the bar on the original point of the law, or as Pastor Stacy likes to say, he deepens the law, murder to hatred and unrighteous anger, adultery to lust, oaths to all levels of dishonesty and deception. And last week, not just loving our neighbor, but loving our enemy. But there's a unique twist this week. The three things Jesus addresses this week are quite different from murder, lying, and adultery. You know, unlike these previously listed items, which are clearly sin, giving, prayer, and fasting, those are good things. Right? These are, these are acts of worship. But Jesus drills into how people in the first century and how even us today have the ability, we have the ability to take something that's good and make it sinful by making it about ourselves. So today's passage is about how even when we do something good, we can do it for the wrong reasons. So our good news statement throughout this series is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus empowers us to live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom here, now, and forever. Today we're going to take a dive into how we can live purposefully and abundantly in God's kingdom as it pertains to living our lives without what James Bryan Smith calls in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, vainglory, 
vainglory. So I, that word vainglory is probably not in your vocabulary unless perhaps you're a gamer and played the multiplayer online video game called Vainglory, which was developed back in 2014. Now, I'm not a gamer, uh, but if you Google that word, word Vainglory, this online video game is one of the first things that comes up. But, but seriously, what is Vainglory? Merriam-Webster defines Vainglory as excessive or ostentatious pride, especially in one's achievements. Now, Smith states... That early on in the church, Christians use this term to describe the sins that, leaves, that Jesus lays out in our text today. Specifically, practicing your righteousness before others for the purpose of being noticed. So, it's really rooted in insecurity, manifested in, in the need to be noticed. Now, Smith states that while vainglory is a problem for everyone, it's a particular problem for, the, for religious people. He even calls vainglory the bane of the pious. And what I think is interesting about this, related to the Sermon on the Mount, it's the only vice that actually needs a virtue to exist. Vainglory hides itself behind another virtue. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as I stated, he raises the bar, right? We're moving past the carnal vices of murder, hatred, anger, lust, lying, deceit, and now we're going to take a hard look at the sin that's actually in our hearts that can be in our hearts when we try to do good things. So that's what we're going to go after today. Sound like fun? Well, fun may not be the right word, but I'll tell you this. This passage may be more challenging for pastors, worship leaders, and essentially church leaders of all sort because of the opportunities for vainglory are more prevalent for those of us who, who are more visible in leadership. And I'm also going to say up front, I don't have to go far for illustrations this morning because of some of the gifts God has given me and the unique calling he's put on my life. Even from a young age, a good amount of my time in my, as I've grown in my walk with Christ has been in, on display in front of people uh, due to serving um, and traveling with music ministries for so many years when I was a young adult and now serving as an associate pastor for a church. So I don't know if that makes me more or less qualified to preach this. Uh, but being someone who essentially grew up in my early years in faith in front of people, on stage, so to speak, I, I have enough material this morning, I could lay myself bare with story after story about what failure looks like doing a good thing, but yet having the wrong motive. Now, most of these failures, are, they're not epic demonstrations or catastrophes, but rather, I think they're, they're little failures of the heart, sometimes, probably most of the time, unseen, but sinful nonetheless. Former ECC pastor John Black uh, was one of the first pastors I ever heard really name this tension that exists in preaching. Yeah, in a moment of brutal honesty, he said, you know, all of us, when we preach, we want to do a good job, right? We want people to like our sermons and to like us. Let's be real here, right? I remember my first sermon at ECC uh, years ago. I had a deep conviction and a calling to preach that first message but I also had a healthy amount of fear, all right? I remember one day in particular leading up to that sermon, I was at home, and I was on my couch, and I was praying, and in a moment of questioning, I was like, what are you doing? Why do you even want to do this? I had a real fear that I would lose my place, that I would get lost, and then I'd stumble over my words, and I'd make a fool of myself. And as I prayed that particular day on the couch, the Spirit of God impressed on me the followings, as if the Spirit was saying, Kurt, so what if you lost your place, and you look foolish, 
Yet someone, because of me, in that room came to faith in me that day. Would it be worth it? Would you be willing to look foolish for the sake of someone's soul? And I, I tell you what, I still look back on that as a great gift from God that day. You know, so even to the, today, even in that nervous moment right before I walk up on the platform, I think if I'm ever going to say something stupid or look foolish, I think, well, God may do something great with that, so just relax. All right? So let's dive into the passage. Jesus starts with the words, be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when I study a passage, whether it's for preaching, teaching, or just or leading of a study, I often highlight words or sentences with different colors. I'm looking for themes. So those of you who do precept studies, I mean, you, you, you're familiar with dissecting scripture in this way. And so I started highlighting with colors when I first did inductive Bible studies in seminary class. Now, for me personally, I don't write on a paper with colored pencils like you do in precepts, but I just use a highlight feature in a Word document. So when I preach, this is often the first thing that I do. So when I did this with today's passage, immediately two things stood out to me regarding the consequences of our actions that I highlighted one in the color red and the other in the color green. So red means stop and green means go. Welcome to my mind here. Okay, so immediately I highlighted in red the negative consequence of verse one. You will have no reward from your father in heaven. Now, does that mean that well, you won't spend eternity with your father in heaven? No, no. I like to look at it this way. It means you just settled for something that's less than God's best for you. So Jesus expands on this theme of practicing your righteousness in front of others by listing it in the verses that follow the three ways that that was happening in the first century. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And what's cool is this green-red pattern emerges in each of these three areas is Jesus, he actually repeats the same words. When they practice their righteousness in front of others, they, read have received their reward in full. But when they practice their righteousness in secret, then green, your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. All right, so I love themes. I love patterns. Jesus actually repeats the exact same words for all three examples. Red is settling for the meager earthly reward of, of recognition and praise from mankind, green is the better reward from the Father. All right, let's take, let's take a look at verse 1. Look at, take, or look at these one by one. Verse 2, so when you give to the deity, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. All right, so giving is a good thing, right? Jesus isn't saying here, don't give. Neither is he saying don't pray out loud or fast later. It isn't the act that he's condemning. It's the motivation behind the act. Now, the scholars I studied cite, there's no scriptural nor historical reference to trumpets literally being sounded in the synagogue when, people's, when people gave. This is, this is a provocative metaphor being used by Jesus. However, I have no doubt that there, there must have been a conspicuous dynamic to giving in the synagogues at times otherwise why would jesus have mentioned this so question does conspicuous giving and subsequent honor given to individuals happen in our context today uh-huh we know it does now i'd like to think we do a pretty good job here at ecc as do most churches i think but we have some very generous stewards here at ecc 
Uh, if you've been to a congregational meeting uh, where I've given a report, if you read my annual report, I will, you know that I will often talk about a significant gift from time to time. However, those gifts remain anonymous. It's the donor's desire to do so, and it's the church leadership as well. But we've seen this isn't always the case in the world of philanthropy. There are plenty of buildings, building wings, and furniture named after people because of their donations. I mean, we see that in education. We see it in higher education. We see it in healthcare. We even see it in our denomination. Um, in our 150 years as a church, ECC isn't completely free of it either, just saying. So is it wrong? I would argue that this passage contends it isn't best. It may be a form of settling for less than God's best reward. But Jesus continues, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Okay, so this phrase, your left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Now, today that applies to organizations or companies where people or departments in one part of the company don't understand what's happening in another part of the company. Uh, it's usually said about inefficiencies or layers of complexity within an organization. So the biblical origins of this phrase have nothing to do with what it's become in our, con our context. Now, regarding what Jesus said here, can he be taken literally here? No. I mean, hands don't have a mind of their own, right? So this is another hyperbolic statement to make a point. The point being that we should seek the best in our giving practices and not settle. So keeping your giving a secret for the purpose of, of not seeking the praise of mankind is better than whatever reward you're going to get from getting praise from mankind. Scholar Scott McKnight, I think, does a fantastic job of breaking down the structure of all three of these examples of practicing our righteousness before others versus keeping them a secret. So McKnight states that each of these sections has the same six points. Uh, the observance, the prohibition, the selfish intent, the amen or the reward for the vainglory, the better alternative observance, and lastly, the Father's rewards. Okay, so I told you I like patterns and sequence, so if you just kind of nerd out with me just for a bit here, we can lay this pattern over all three passages, and we're going to do that. All right. So first, the, the observance of giving to the needy. Uh, we can break it down as follows. The prohibition is do not announce your giving as the hypocrites do. The intent is to be honored by others. And the amen or the reward is that they've received their reward in full. Now, the alternative observance is when you give, keep it a secret. And the father's reward is that the father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So what's the reward? Again, I think McKnight nails this. He says, we can infer that the reward is the same thing as blessings that we find in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. It's the Beatitudes. It's the joy of entering into a relationship that both sustains life, regardless of its conditions, and it unleashes flourishing relationships. So it's very similar to our good news statement. But I want to pause here this morning. I want to talk about the word hypocrites. Hypocrites. Jesus uses that word three times with the three examples that are given. Now, the Greek word in its neutral form literally means stage actors. Stage actors. And it's applied metaphorically to those who perform their religious acts with an eye toward the human audience. So, 
Even in the message, Eugene Peterson translates the word as play actors. So when you hear that word hypocrites in the text this morning, I want you to think about actors on a stage putting on a performance. Okay? Let's look at the second example. In fact, let's just lay McKnight's grid over it. The observance when you pray. The prohibition. Do not be like the hypocrites, the stage actors. The intent. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. The amen or the reward. It's the same word for, uh, wording as forgiving. It's the red. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. The alternate is observance. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. The Father's reward, Jesus repeats the green, the same words as before. Then the Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Okay, so there's the pattern. Now I do have a concern that some might resolve, well, that settles it. I'm never going to pray out loud again. I don't like to pray out loud, and this confirms it. Now I have good reason not to. If that's your conclusion, that would be a shame. That would be a shame. Praying out loud or praying in groups is not a sin. Otherwise, we'd be sinning up here every Sunday morning. Let's get some context as to what's going on. Faithful Jews prayed three times a day, all right, before going to bed, when they arose, and midday, which is approximately about 3 p.m., it's this midday prayer that Jesus is homing in on here. He, Jesus is fully aware that the hypocrites, the stage actors, would actually plan to get caught out in public at this midday hour. So they wanted to be conspicuous. They wanted to be seen as righteous. Praying in the streets because, oh, well, you know, I just got caught here. It's 3 o'clock. Jesus was not talking about spontaneous prayers or praying with someone who has a need or praying with a group in a context no, this is a very specific context he's going after here. Now, I, I do think that there's some relevance to our context today. I think we still need to examine ourselves when we pray, out loud particularly. So the question is, when we're, are we praying to God? Or are we praying, are we saying words that we want others to hear for some reason? Whether that's to motivate, to convict, or to influence them in some way. So in other words... Who is your audience when you pray? And this is tricky. This is tricky. Prayer, you know, we know prayers can inspire, they can motivate, they can comfort, they can bring peace. But it's not the words. It's the presence of the Spirit where two or three are gathered that, that works in the hearts of mankind. And, and part, of our, part of our transformation is the centering that when I pray, I'm praying to God. I'm praying to an audience of one. Now, other, others may be joining me in prayer. I may be leading them in prayer, but they're not my audience. God is. But again, let me just say to you, and my brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow disciples, I'd rather you join me in courageously, boldly praying out loud where necessary, making mistakes, failing forward as we grow, than, than to not step out in faith and do this. But Jesus gives us an example of how to pray in the Lord's Prayer that follow, in the verses that follow. And we can never go wrong with this example. I'm not going to dive into the Lord's Prayer this morning. Instead, I want to invite you to take a deeper dive into this with Pastor Stacy this week in the blog post that'll be linked to the e-letter that'll be on our website. So look for that later. So let's look at Jesus' last example of practicing our righteousness before others in, in, in the form of fasting, again, using McKnight's grid. So the observance, when you fast, the prohibition, do not look somber as the hypocrites, the play actors do. The intent for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. 
the amen reward. Again, the red. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. The alternative is service. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And lastly, the father's reward, the green statement, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, so of the three items Jesus mentioned, this one probably has the least cultural connection to our current practice of fasting today. And I don't have time this morning to fully unpack fasting, but the type of fasting most do today is called instrumental fasting. It's instrumental fasting for the purpose of spiritual growth, for suppression of sin, or a time of focused prayer. Now what was happening in Jesus' context was it was more fasting in response to something, response to a sacred moment or a grievous, sincere condition. When, when you think about what Roman occupation was, that was all the time for them. So what was happening in that context was similar to praying for the purpose of being noticed. The hypocrites, the stage actors, were intentionally making themselves look disheveled, for lack of a better word, in order to get noticed. Now, Honestly, I can tell you in my church upbringing, I've never encountered that in our current context. So this particular religious practice has, has certainly changed, but I still think there's something to be learned here. So given that, what does this passage say to us today in our context? And I'd like to propose some applications for us to take with us this morning, but applying, I think applying this passage is going to take some introspection on our part. Perhaps even incorporating the spiritual discipline or spiritual practice of examine. Examine. Now, if you're not familiar with examine, it's an Ignatian practice. It's very old. If you, I'll give you my brief definition of it. it is, I think it's just simply carving out time and space at the end of each day to recognize how God has moved in your life that day. And often, in God's kindness, our inner motives are revealed to us when we do this. So here are some thoughts. Even if you're not a person who speaks, leads, or leads pub publicly, many of us are often fish for compliments or praise from mankind or perform for someone in the room. We actually get quite good at this. It sometimes it masks itself in false humility, uh, humble brags as some people like to call them. So I think part of our transformational growth is to recognize when this tension is going on inside us. So the next time that you feel temptation to, to fish for the praise of mankind, can you catch yourself? Can you catch yourself in that moment? Instead, turn your attention instead to your, just your relationship with God. Can you be content being unnoticed by mankind? Can you catch yourself in that moment? And can God, the audience of one, be enough for you? Can you let that good thing that's on your mind be a secret? See, if you fish for a compliment and you get it, would Jesus say to you, well, you have your reward in full. There you go. I want to give credit for this next thought to Pastor Jordan. You know, our staff is committed to weekly spiritual formation in our staff meetings. We're committed to go to the places that we want to lead you as a congregation to. And we're a couple weeks ahead of our sermon series, Working Through the Good and Beautiful Life. We did this in the fall with Love Over Fear, and we've done it with other books in the past. And, you know, a nice byproduct. for all, It also serves as good fodder for those of us who preach. Uh, but Pastor Jordan had been 
listening to a podcast related to John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Pastor Stacy mentioned this book last week. And regarding the idea of living your life without vainglory, he raises a question. Do you wear busyness as a badge of honor? Do you wear busyness as a badge of honor? See, drawing attention to our busyness, I think, is also a way of practicing our righteousness before others. So do you find yourself giving thought to making sure that others know and understand how much you do or how much you do for God? And I think this question cuts deep. And I got to say, as I look at my life over the years, I've, I stand before you as someone who's been guilty of this. Well, in response to Pastor Jordan's comments, Pastor Stacy shared a story about the late Dallas Willard, who, whenever he was on campus, made it a practice to walk slowly and deliberately as he walked around campus with his hands behind his back so that he appeared very open and interruptible to both students and faculty, to whoever, whoever might want to talk to him, as opposed to being closed or in a hurry with your head down. I think we can even engage in vainglory with our body language. <laughs> I have been so guilty of this throughout my life. When we do this, we're sending a message that I'm busy. What I do is important. I can't be interrupted. I think it's another form of vainglory. Uh, I'll tell you what, there is so much more we could explore here, and we may need to circle back to this when we hit the touchstone of presence as it pertains to evangelism, but that's another sermon, okay? We'll leave that for now. So my last thought, Jesus gave three specific examples of practicing righteousness before others in those common religious activities of that day, giving, prayer, and fasting, so the question occurred to me as I was studying our text, if Jesus walked into our 21st century church today, what religious activities might he point out where we engage in this? What might he point out at ECC specifically? I think wearing our busyness as a badge of honor is likely one of the main things Jesus would point out. I think he'd say to us that when we engage in that, we've received our reward in full. Which, when you think about it, just means we, we just settled. We settled for less than the green of God's reward. We settled for the red. Each of us is on a transformation journey, being transformed into Christ's image. None of us comes into this relationship with Jesus completely transformed. And I think vainglory is often something that takes a while for us to recognize in ourselves and to repent of. You know, I think many of us, myself included, we're, we're still working on it. We're becoming more self-aware. We're being formed more into Christ's image each day. Making mistakes, failing forward as we go along, but still being transformed. If you're worshiping with us online or you're here in the sanctuary today in person and, and you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus. If you say you could not still not name him as your Lord and Savior, first off, we are, we're so glad you're here. And I say to you, if you are here, there's obviously something in you that is curious. Jesus said in John 10 that I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the full. Jesus desires a relationship with you. And he offers a better way to live as a Christ follower who's being transformed. And if you'd like to know more about this, I invite you to do a few things. You can like the comment in the chat section of our Facebook page this morning. 
You can reach out to us through the virtual communication card that you'll find on our website um, on the worship page saying you'd like to know about what it, more about what it means to follow Jesus. If you're here in the sanctuary and you'd like to talk to me or you'd like to talk to any of us down front, I'd invite you to come forward and, and just catch me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Okay. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for these words, as convicting as they are, Lord. God, and I thank you that it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And God, that you are a gracious God. You're slow to anger and you're rich in mercy. God, would you help us not to settle for the lesser reward of the praise of mankind? God, would you help us to catch ourselves? Catch ourselves when we're tempted to fish for it. Or draw attention to ourselves just for the sake of human praise. God, help us to recognize that this is a need that can be met or met by an intimate relationship with you. And God, I pray for anyone that, who's with us this morning who hasn't taken that initial step in that relationship with you, Jesus, that they realize how much you love them and how much you desire a relationship with them and that, that they would reach out in faith to take that next step. Amen.